everyone, and welcome back to the Shakespeare series with MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard. Today we're talking about All's Well That Ends Well, which is definitely not your favorite Shakespeare play. It's nobody's favorite Shakespeare play. It's not even the favorite Shakespeare play of the person I brought in to specifically talk about his favorite Shakespeare play. Um, today we're talking to Ted Witzel, who is a crazy, brilliant, crazy, comma, brilliant uh, director in Toronto, who he recently did a production of All's Well That Ends Well, and that's why he wants to talk about it. Also because he's just not the kind of guy you talk to about Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth or any of the ones that people consider quote-unquote good plays. Um, part of the reason for that is that it's hard to break a play, a uh, good play, um, whereas a what is considered a bad play uh, leaves a director like Ted a lot more freedom to play around and do crazy things and have rubber chickens in his show and have a crazy, like, slutty clown lady, um, his words. So <laughs> buckle up for his his version of All's Well. Uh, this episode has some questionable language, so if you listen with children, maybe uh, don't. Um, that's really all I have to say in preparation uh, for the Ted Witzel Talks About All's Well episode that you're about to hear. In the meantime, at my Aunt world on Twitter and Instagram, myentertainmentworld.ca is the website where you can find all of our written coverage, all of our podcast episodes, which you should also find on iTunes by subscribing, rate and review while you're there, always helps. That's all you have to know. See you on the other side. All's well that ends well made Wikipedia's brain explode. Um, it w just couldn't handle it. So the synopsis is your responsibility. What do you have for us? Um, well, I have three here that we, Lauren and I came up with when we were conceiving the play. So uh, synopsis one is an unlikely bromance between two men on the run from a woman who's kind of intimidating. <laughs> uh, synopsis two would be a stupid story about consequentialist ethics and their relationship to love and sex. Or synopsis three is why minor to moderate consent violations don't matter if it all comes out in the wash. Um, <laughs> those were more subtitles than synopses. Like, basically, it's about a girl who's seen too many Disney films and has a fucked up idea about what love means and sets her sights on somebody who barely knows that she exists. And rather than, like, trying to woo him or seduce him through any kind of conventional means you know, because of, like, gender and stuff, uh, she decides she's going to cure the king's butthole problem and then demand him as a prize for doing so, uh, at which point he says he'd rather die in gunfire, runs off to a war zone with his uh, bad-influenced best friend, who's also, in our version, a bit of a closet case. Not only in our version. You can read that the play pretty clearly in that direction. Um, so he runs off because he'd rather die in gunfire to the war in Florence, uh, where there's like lots of syphilis and lots of syphilis jokes because of Columbus and syphilis and the French pox or whatever. Um, and so she tracks him down there and does the good old bed trick, which means she basically like rapes him uh, and takes his ring and gets pregnant with his kid and then shows up at the fakes her own death and then shows up at the end of the play and is like, guess what? I'm not dead. Got your ring, fucker. And guess what? I'm pregnant. And that's the end of the play. And then they and they have they end up together, and he decides he loves her. Blah blah blah. According well, to the already, general synopsis, they're already married. I mean, whether he decides he loves her, or not, I don't even know what the last words of the play are at this point. Um, what what's he say? He has his big direction binder. Everybody. <laughs> I yeah, I brought my binder because the play's not very good, so I kind of forget what's in it. Um, uh, he says oh, both both. Oh, pardon. And then she says some stuff about, like, Mr. King, you were real nice when I was still a virgin. And then Bertram, the best thing about Bertram is he goes, if she can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly, which is a bit of a the, the man doth protest too much thing. Like, it's an if statement and two evers and two dearlies and a really lame rhyme. And then at that point, she's like, well, if it's not true, then you can divorce me. Uh, like... If it turns out not to be true that I raped you, you can divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> and then the king's like, tell us the whole story, please. Happy ending, everyone. And then they repeat the title again. 
Okay, so as as I think pretty well established at this point, this is not considered a particularly good play. Um, why do people hate? Most people haven't seen it until your production with Canon Stage a couple years ago. So, like most, why does everybody hate it? What are some of the problems? And how can it be approached in 2017 in a way that is at least semi-palatable? I don't know that it's palatable. I think that's like I think that's what I like about it so much. It's an ugly, unpleasant motherfucker of a play. Um, like people, people justifiably hate it. There's no like, there's no good poetry in it. There's no like glittering lines. I could maybe quote you one line from the play. Uh, most of it's pretty clunky, shitty, rhymey stuff, and like. I, like even the the funny people like they don't say anything like they're they're no touchstone or anything like there's this old guy who's there just making dick jokes the whole time and has no dramaturgical function he has no good lines even the heroine like she has one line that i could quote you for all one i should love some bright particular star he is so above me that's kind of nice other than that it's all crap um yeah it's a real it's a real beast of a play like people don't like this play and it's like like even canadian stage was like why would you want to do that and i was talking to um christopher gaze when i was like when i when i was in the talks with canadian stage because they wanted me to do another midsummer fucking night stream uh. or much ado about nothing matthew loves much ado about nothing and i don't understand how you could do that play in a culture where it's like inappropriate to throw acid in a woman's face but um i was reading through the comedies and the ones I couldn't remember because I didn't like any of the ones I could remember. Uh, and I'd already done Shrew. <laughs> um, and Measure for Measure and Merchant of Venice don't really count as comedies because they're pretty unpleasant too. And then I stumbled on this and I was like, oh, this is kind of equally unpleasant, but it's like a little bit more dressed up as a comedy. And I think the thing that like really repels people about this play is that the idea of comedy is the question of the play. Like it's a, like the... There's no other Shakespeare play where people so desperately and insistently repeat the title. Like, it's it, the title comes into the dialogue at least three times in the play. Um, it may come in four times, but I definitely cut the fourth one because it's in the weird scene with the gentleman astringer or gentleman a stranger. We're not really sure what that typo was there. <laughs> An astringer is someone with goshawks. Uh, and there were no goshawks in the scene. Um, but but like the like this idea of like I, I say sort of facetiously that she's seen too many Disney films, but her her faith, Helen's faith in the comic paradigm is the driving force of the play, the happy ending, the necessary happy ending. And the play just gets grosser and grosser and grosser, and that happy ending seems more and more impossible. Uh, it's like drenched in death. Like it starts at a funeral. There's another dead guy. Someone else is grieving. The king might die. Um, he's got like a problem with his butthole. And like then there's a giant war in the middle of the play. Like there's a, it's really not like a flounce in the forest kind of play. Um, and I think that makes people profoundly uncomfortable. But I am kind of as a director, I'm happiest in texts where a genre is like really problematic or in tension or in question so like i i love titus because i think it's like even it may have the biggest body count of any shakespeare play but i also think it's one of his funniest plays um and i also like i like all's well because it like even though it's got a happy ending in a marriage it's like the most brutally violent and unpleasant of shakespeare's plays that i can think of i actually think it's more violent than titus and i think it's you know more tragic than hamlet so <laughs> And do you, what are some of the ways that we can at least improve it or look at it through a particularly 2017 lens, soon to be 2018, and that either points out the flaws of the play even more strongly or somehow uh, starts to move it towards something that's a little bit more interesting? Well, I think the, like the, the, I think questioning the genre of comedy as it relates to our expectations of love is super relevant in a culture that has been you know saturated with shitty rom-coms like this is like the 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 genre of middle comedy as it's evolved and was adapted into sort of Shakespeare's time and has progressed from there this faith in the happy ending has pervaded in Hollywood love stories as well and continues to promote a kind of singular monogamous view of 
marriage as as the the sort of ultimate way in which human beings are supposed to partner partner up with each other um you know and, and produce more consumers in our, our present economic model so i think that one the question of like what love looks like and and how people's idea of love is often incongruous with the realities of love and sex and impulse and urge i think that's super interesting and i also think the play's depiction of toxic masculinity is really sort of bang on for our present moment like the the way the boys are with each other like bertram and parolis and as well like <laughs> tweedledum and tweedledee do mean one and do mean two um who are also first lord second lord and lord e and lord g and i sort of synthesize them all into one but I, there may be multiple pairs of bros peppered throughout the play uh i didn't have enough actors for that so i just made one pair of bros um but i like i think the way the men behave especially in the war zone is, is really interesting because it's a right before i directed the show i i was on this trip in cambodia and thailand and i ended up on khao san road and seeing the way groups of men behave in a different in a in a culture where they don't have any sort of direct responsibility for themselves or each other or any fucking thing at all um and and the way like the way they start to interact in these places where like they're being there's a social imperative of this performance of really nasty ugly like filthy masculinity I think that's a that's a really like we're you know it's only become more useful to talk about in the years that have passed since I did the play. Um, do you have a specific character, a specific element of the storyline that really draws you into Oswald and that serves as your anchor to get you through the play? Um, it's the tr it's the well I have two. It's the trio in the middle. I think this this um, the triangle between Helen, Parolis, and Bertram. I think is really interesting and I actually think like it's really easy to read Bertram as just like a dick um and Helen as this like poor disenfranchised woman but like Bertram and like nobody asked Bertram <laughs> like <laughs> like there's like if, if you want to read through the lens of consent it's Bertram and we had a really big discussion in the rehearsal hall because some of the actors in the cast did not want to hear the word rape every day which you know fair like I I also well, I do think about rape just about every day, but that's that's just because of the sort of political corner of the world I operate in, and, and gender and sexuality politics tend to be my modus operandi. But um, I think it's really interesting to try to read Bertram and Helen as humans instead of archetypes, and as well Parolis, because Parolis is just like, you know, he's descended from like the Milus Gloriosus, but if you actually asked like what the performance covers i think with each of those three characters when you when you try to ask the question of what the performance covers and it's maybe something interesting about this play as a shakespeare play what it like because shakespearean how do i put this um that i find that people rarely say what they mean in this play whereas in a lot of shakespeare plays the convention is that they work out their thoughts out loud and like sort of a truism of theater school is that like Shakespeare has no subtext they say it out loud which I find that dicey I find it like I think bad playwrights are the only kind of playwrights who write plays where people never lie but um in this particular case people like the the poetry is quite flaccid because there's so much going on underneath the text um and I think if you if you really try to take kind of a Chekhovian reading uh of of the of those three characters and their actions and intentions um it's quite it's quite helpful to understanding the dramaturgy of the play the other my other way in is a character who like i completely dismantled and reconstructed for my own purposes who became my favorite like touchstone of the piece was uh lavatch um who's like th that's the aforementioned clown who has no dramaturgical function and no impact on the plot whatsoever all this all this stupid clown does is he's this old dude who, who is there for no reason he's he just hangs out kind of near the countess who doesn't like him much and he makes dick jokes all day and then at some point she's like here's a letter take it to my kid and also to helen in paris 
and he goes there, but then they never open the letter or read it, and then he just goes back to annoy the countess some more. Uh, so he's got no function whatsoever, and people usually cut him. Uh, but I like I, I couldn't really bear the thought of cutting him, and then I then we ended up because of the cross casting model uh, or the the rep model, um, and just the way that group of actors that our company played out. I had this really fabulous actress, Rachel Jones, um, who I plugged into that role and sort of started thinking about like who might this Lavatch person be in a female body. We sort of created this backstory where like the the countess's dead husband was having an affair with her, so she was the other woman, um, which like immediately sort of sparked off a bunch of tensions within the the uh, relationship with the countess and the older generation. It's one of the few Shakespeare plays where the parents are like better than the kids uh, <laughs> or like more appealing than the kids. Um, and there's a lot going on in that older generation, uh, which maybe if you like, I don't know, is, is it if you buy the chronology of if Shakespeare wrote these plays and he wrote them in the order that we think he wrote them in um, and it wasn't, Queen Elizabeth or the ghost of Christopher Marlowe or the Illuminati that were writing these plays, then uh, this being like the last comedy he wrote, that's also quite interesting. Like the people date this one around 1606 and it's interesting that his focus shifts from these like poor, hard done by children to like these decent parents trying to wrestle with a bunch of asshole kids. Um, but the like, yeah, so turning Lavatch into from like an old man who made too many dick jokes into a slutty clown in a cow print dress that that really <laughs> helped me to like this play a lot more and like then trying to like the clown as like an emblem of like how you understand the operation of comedy in this world and so i ended up writing a bunch of monologues god forbid i i put my own words beside mr shakespeare's but um and we, we wrote her three monologues that sort of covered the three movements of the play, really because I just needed, I needed her to go and keep the audience entertained while some things changed on the stage behind her. Um, and I was like, we need to fill this time with something. Let's give the slutty clown some more words. We like her. <laughs> We'd like to see more of her. Maybe she'll sing us a song. Um, and she, she ended up becoming, and, and then she ended up having a nice relationship to Parolis as well, and Parolis sort of accepting... Uh, like as he came out of the closet towards the end of the play or was like forced out of the closet, he was like forced into this sexless world of like not really integrating and they stuck him in a zebra print dress and made him be friends with his fag hag slutty clown um, in like, you know, like I think it, I think it's interesting to see like Parolis's rejection there because he's like the Malvolio or the Jaquies. He's like the... He's the guy who don't get to partner up at the end because it's all heteronormative at the end of comedies. So he was sort of like rejected and marginalized and made mock of in that kind of appropriate way. What did, exactly did you have her say? Uh, well, not exactly, but like, like generally, did you have her say? He's going know. to his this notes, everyone. Long, this is a long <laughs> time ago, but I think, I don't know if I kept this. It was like a year and a half ago. I will, I will grant you. Uh, I have done a lot of plays since then. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I have I have some of the words that she said here. Um, <laughs> the slutty clown speaks the prologues. Um, <laughs> that's the name of that scene. <laughs> um, yeah, and every time the did I put her slutty prologues? And this is part two. <laughs> Also, this is super funny to look inside this book right now because I like this is my edition of the like I type up every script that I work on. Oh really? Like I retype it. So um, my stage direction here is enter some hot Frenchmen or some audience members who are going to get participated at. Ah, um, did you do that? I don't remember that. N no, no. I feel like if I had audience participation, I would have revolted. Yeah, no, I would have too. I hate getting participated at. That's why I always put it in my play. <laughs> <laughs> it's the well like so I, I don't mind being participated with but I hate being participated at and my distinction between the two is um, I feel like 90% of audience participation that I see is about the performer trying to extract something that they need from an audience member which puts an audience member on the spot of like that panicked look it's like am I doing it right am I giving you what you want from me where I think that like 
healthy participation is actually giving something to the audience, recognizing them being there, mm-hmm. um, giving them something for themselves. Like uh, I saw a Meg Stewart show uh, that she did with the Münchner Kammerspiele that was like really kind of beautiful the way the participation happened in terms of it being like one of the dancers just came up and like tied a bandage around someone's uh, not a bandage like a like a band around someone's elbow and said like as long as this is on you I'll be thinking of you what's your name like what are you doing here and then got up on a mic and said there's this great woman named like Eileen in the audience and she does this for a living and I just think that we all need to give her a round of applause for being here and being who she is and it's so like it's so non-threatening because it's not like Eileen being like what do you need from me it's like Eileen being given this like little gift by mm-hmm. a performer and I think that 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 kind of participation is really rewarding um, all that is to say, and yet um, what you make us do is vote for Hitler to be president. <laughs> and what was the other thing? Yeah. Oh, like demand, uh, reject the calls of calls for help from the Witch of Edmonton, who's being like burned at the stake. Yeah, <laughs> but like I mean, always like, deeply unpleasant. <laughs> but I mean, in those cases, like what you're battling is like, do you go up there and give the performer something that they want, or do you just accept that you're going to be a passive participant? Like, yeah. So, like, the, the comfortable thing is actually the thing that we need from you. We need yeah. you to, like, not take action or we need you to uphold the status quo. And I mm-hmm. think, like, that's that's so interesting because, we, you know, you see, like, a violent incident erupt on the subway and there's only that one person who's going to stand up and help. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is going to, like, put their headphones on. or Because we're also scared of audience participation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the world's a stage, man. Totally. <laughs> Um, okay, so what were you looking at? You were looking up Labatt. Oh, what did the slutty clown yeah. say in the prologues? Um, so they, they were like three speeches that... So I, I found that the play did like... You know, I, maybe I went like... It's very appropriate that we're like a block away from Victoria College because I, I went with the Northrop Fry sort of structure of comedy, the like beginning in the in civilization, go into the green world and then re- return to civilization with order restored or problems messed up. I think I think that's the structure that Shakespeare's playing with in here. And uh, so I found that the play had three kind of distinct movements. Um, the first was between Rousselian and Paris, the second was in the war zone in Florence, and then the third was the return to the family home in Rousselian. Um, sort of like a, a winter's tale structure, an as-you-like-it structure. Yeah, exactly. Midsummer Night's Dream even yeah. goes from Athens to the forest and back to Athens. Right. Um, so, except the forest in this case is a war zone full of syphilis. Obviously. Um, As you do. You know. <laughs> um, and, it, like, there were a bunch of interesting things I found out about that war, because I don't, I don't believe that Shakespeare went to Italy. He might have, but, you know, who cares? Who cares? It's really an idea of Italy. But, the, like, the things that one would have known about... Florence in the period that he's kind of writing about was it was the first war in Europe to be fought with guns and it was those Italian campaigns where they think that syphilis entered into Europe like it came back from with Columbus entered into Italy in the early 1500s and then these wars were sort of the first incidents of syphilis the French army was fighting there um, on the side of the either the Florentines or the Sienese I can't remember they were I don't even know in this play whose side they're fighting on. Um, And, uh, yeah, then the French brought it back, and then the English were like, oh, it's the Frenchman's pox or whatever, because the French were the ones who brought it from Italy, and then the English got it when they were having wars or diplomatic whatevers with France. Um, So to divide these three sections, I I had the set change three significant times. Um, There were sort of three major arrangements because I wanted to really like pull out this comic structure and like visually and emotionally for the audience like just to make that kind of tactile but not too on the nose so I thought if the if the slutty clown came out and gave us some narration about the structure of fairy tales or like the structure of happy endings in this time so each each of the texts started with a, a you statement the first one was you love you love you love and it hurts you love and you lie uh, you wa- you love and you wonder if you're just not just a little bit stupid for loving the impossible. Uh, you love and you wonder what all this crap is about a higher self because you love and it doesn't elevate you. It makes you small and desperate and a little bit cruel. Um, uh, yeah. So then the next one was, and this was all set over a cigarettes after sex song um, by 
uh, called Nothing's Gonna Hurt Your Baby, uh, which I thought kind of worked out well with the comedy structure. And then the second one, Lavatch said, You Fight. So this is introducing the war. And this is when Lavatch does like a really guerrilla quick change mid-song. Oh, Rachel is fucking incredible. She disappeared behind the screen for like three seconds. And we'd like engineered the like dress, and we had two people backstage behind there who literally just ripped her clothes off. She was underdressed as the widow, stuck a new wig on her while she was mid-song and sent her out there. And that text was, you fight, you fight. Uh, you fight against the future you didn't ask for. You fight for the future you almost had. You fight against your better instincts and your nagging doubts. You fight back the feeling that somewhere back there you took a wrong turn, and I don't remember seeing any of these towns on the map. Um, you fight because you're certain or because you're not. You fight doubt. You fight grief. You fight those extra charges on your electricity bill. Um, you fight because even though you're not sure the universe is just, you know that for certain this is not. You fight to be seen. You fight for air. You fight for... Oh, no, we cut that. Um, you fight for Helen of Troy or for an oil patch. You fight for a war you don't understand in a country you don't care about because politics aren't really your thing and you don't care to fight for the, for the semantic difference between a peacekeeping mission and imperial expansion. Uh, you fight for the happy end your you're sure your story is supposed to have. And then, what the fuck, I, re I remember I wrote the third one like the morning of that rehearsal because I was like, what the fuck do they say now? <laughs> um, I only wrote these things because I knew I had an actor waiting for me who had to say some words and I'd booked the rehearsal and I was like, well, fuck, I'd better give her some words. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so the, the return to Resilient then was, and then inevitably you go back, come home, return. You pack up your lingering misgivings and your mild regrets and you fold them between the nine pairs of dirty socks and that novel you meant to read on the plane. You heave them onto your back and you say your 5 a.m. goodbyes and you walk the sunrise streets of the city you don't know when or if you'll see again to the subway, bus, train, airport, plane, customs, taxi, and you come home. You leave the dark forest or the enchanted island or the land of the dead or the goddamn war zone you found yourself in and you come home because even though this doesn't feel very funny to you, it is a comedy after all, you come home. And as you put your hand to the knob on your door, the thought flashes through you that you're not sure whether, every, whether behind it everything will be wildly different. You come home and it is different. Manifoldly or imperceptibly, it's different. Someone's pregnant or someone's married or someone's dead or maybe it just took going away to realize how much fluoride they put in the tap water here. You come home and you're different, but you're not sure anyone will notice because no matter how well you tell the story, you're not sure anyone will understand just how it changed you to strip your clothes off that midnight and jump in the river with those strangers you just met at that bar. You come home because every journey has an end and you're not sure it can be a happy one, but you sure as hell hope. Yeah. That's the things the slutty clown said. There's something of the omniscient narrator to giving her this role, right? The, the person oh, yeah. who, who, who can see the structure of something that she theoretically doesn't know is fictional. Um, can you talk a little bit about the... Is, is, was that a purposeful theme, the idea that the silliest person on stage, the person talking just about penises the entire play is also in some ways the one who can see things most clearly. I mean, I think I always feel like I trust the person in the room who can name a dick for what a dick is to know what's going on. Like, <laughs> the person who's not able to call that, like, obvious phallic-shaped object a dick, who I don't trust, but I trust the person who knows it's a dick. Um, so, <laughs> um, I also, like, I, I also thought that it was interesting that the person who is sort of the most blasé about sex was the one who could lead us through a world where everybody else was so fucking anxious about, like, honor and virginity and chastity and monogamy and stuff. Um, like, she'd sort of seen that paradigm. She saw that the rich people in the play sort of lived by that thing. Like, she also always had... She had this horrible, like... <laughs> Sean Kerwin costumed her, like, based on Russian women that she'd seen up in North York at Value Villages. <laughs> Um, oh so hyper specific. <laughs> <laughs> we even played with a Russian accent for a while, um, but like she was like the right kind of like brilliantly trashy. This is her. I, yeah. I know this is an oral medium, but I'm showing Kelly a picture of Lavatch and her cowprint dress. She always had a martini in her hand, and, uh, and it's like big blonde wig that sort of yeah. had a purposeful fakeness to it. That was oh great. yeah, like a yeah. nasty wig. Um, so. So that, like, there was a rejection of that. Like, because I, I sometimes end up at these, like, 
you know, donor functions where everybody's talking about their renovations and their like summer homes and stuff. And I'm like, I feel like I'm on a different planet, but I'm going to go make my weird art about dicks. Like this, <laughs> this is what we're going to, I'm going to go think about rape and dicks <laughs> and you're going to tell me about your renovations. And that's the, you know, that's the interaction we're going to, and I'm going to do my best to pretend I'm interested. Um, so I, I felt like there was something about the fact that she, and, and I guess like part of my politics of queerness and the thing that I've, you know, like that I've always really valued about my sort of point of view is that I, I get to be outside or I, I'm automatically outside. It's like you can choose as a straight person to be inside or outside of like the heteronormative monogamous paradigm. But like by default, especially at the time when I came out, like I think now you... <laughs> you know, capitalism subsumes all its own challenges. So like by now, <laughs> like there is like a heteronormative default to coming out of the closet. It's like you can get married and have kids and join the army and buy lots of things and Rogers will even advertise at you. Uh, but back when I came out that like only Bud Light was advertising at us fags. So um, there, there is this kind of outside perspective that I think ha is really useful for me as a storyteller or an artist or whatever. Uh, and and somehow I always end up manifesting that perspective through like trashy women who are like borderline drag queens on stage. Um, <laughs> you know, there was that bearded lady in Voitsack and like what else? It, like, did Witch of Edmonton have one of those? Um, I don't know. Like most of my most like there's usually some like loudmouthed woman in a loud costume talking about dicks in one of my plays. And that's like, that's usually where you can like find my perspective. <laughs> that's the kind of woman I'm going to become in my fifties. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep a martini glass in my purse too. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the other sort of major character interpretation that you had, which is Parolas, which you talked a little bit about how you feel like it is really strongly in the text that he's a gay character. Um, let talk a little bit about the effect that your interpretation of him had on the story of the play. Uh, the effect that it had on, I mean, I feel like the story turned out the same. <laughs> um, it's just like, you know, it's like with Iago, you got to decide like what's driving him. Like, even if it doesn't like end up man, like he can, he is also just a Machiavell and like in the structure of the story and the outcome is going to be the same, whether he's like secretly in love with Othello or secretly in love with Desdemona or secretly like fears that Othello fucked Amelia, like whatever you choose is driving him, you know, those people are still going to end up dead. Um, so likewise with Parolas, I don't feel like identifying and making in this case making his motivations fairly explicit had a whole lot of ultimate impact on the story it, I guess it had impact on the way the audience understood the story uh, like and and in that way I think what it did is cast into relief what the performance of hyper masculinity does in the world of the play that we created. And I, I didn't set the play like anywhere. Like um, my, my favorite setting is like Nowheresville prologue land. Like that's, that's, uh, you know, I even get like when actors are like, does this prologue happen before or after the play? And it's like, neither. <laughs> With knowledge of the whole thing. Um, yeah, but before, after, after, we'll just say it's after. Um, so you got to give them a direction. You, you want to live in some like obtuse land of geometric shapes and like lots of swirly colors, um, <laughs> which is where I live most of the time. Uh, so I, th I feel like with parolas, what, what makes, like what is clear to me in the text is that he is in love with Bertram. Whether that, like what, what the nature of that love is, is very, up for grabs um, and like it's totally legit for it to be like just bromance it's totally legit for it to be like uh, wild gay fantasies it's like and everything in between um, but he he his behavior and his statements on stage and the the way in which he yeah let's say he manipulates Bertram he is very manipulative um, 
seemed to in the like because I'm I'm thinking of like what is you know back in Shakespeare's day there wasn't even such a thing as a gay identity like the idea of the homosexual emerged in the 1850s like and and was really solidified through the latter half of the 19th century um, so like the idea that gay is an identity rather than somewhere like a kind of sex that you have is is a relatively new construct that belongs entirely to post-industrial modernity um, but that said, my audience lives in post-industrial modernity. So, and, and gay is like a given identity in the world in which the audience who was seeing this play lives. So whatever may have been relevant to Shakespeare, who probably like, you know, you know he expresses all kinds of desire in, in those texts. Um, and, and I don't think any of them would have subscribed to like an urban homosexual identity. Like you, you can put that on a lot of them. They say enough things that aren't incongruous to to that identity that you can like retrofit that. But that like that is an imposition, and I think it's useful to do that imposition because to me, there's absolutely nothing useful about preserving the world of Renaissance England on stage. Uh, like people are like, you can't fuck with Shakespeare. Let's not turn this into a manifesto of how to fuck with Shakespeare, but like <laughs> anybody should be so fucking lucky to have their texts being performed 400 years later, no matter how heavily edited they are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you can't fuck with them, they don't survive. Yeah, they don't survive, and like, who cares? Like, there's, it's also just an accident of history that like Shakespeare is is our guy instead of like I don't know Middleton or like Webster or like. Who's that guy who he wrote Two Noble Kinsmen with? Uh, F F F Fletcher. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, he just sort of won the history lottery, and that's why we keep doing his plays. Um, but I think that with Parolas, I, like, I think that they're, like, what was clear also in the text to me is that Parolis was performing a standard of masculinity. Like the idea of honor, 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 it's said all over in the play. Like all these young men want to go fight in these wars to win their honor or prove their valor. Or like, and, and those abstract concepts like live in the same sphere as like masculinity to me. Like, I don't know, I don't really know what that is. Um, and so, so I thought that the best fit for how a contemporary audience might read that uh, and one that I was prepared to, or like equipped to direct, was one where, uh, wherein his desire was more explicitly queer, um, to the point where like we even added a, a like very simple gestural backstory where he'd like back in the day performed in some porn, um, which included a very cheesy sound cue which Lion Smith had a great time making. Um, uh, but I think, uh, and what that was about, so th that was actually, that was probably the most interesting conversation we had relative to this, I'm so rambly and tangential, relative Go to this it. plot line, but yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll find our way back to a point. I might even remember what the original question was at some point. Uh, <laughs> but like one of the questions that we had in the process of, of creating the piece was uh, with Alon Nashman, who was playing Le Feu, or Le Feu, or, you know, um, the older French dude, um, who, who sort of, like, in the play, he's the one who can sort of see through Parolis. Like, he sees that he's not as brave as he says he is, or not as masked as he says he is. And so, like, we decided to add this plot point that Le Feu had, was, like, sort of the head of the king's CIA or whatever, and had done some, like, digging, and found... For some reason, a magazine that had an audio track. It was it was a theatrical device. He pulled out a folder, and inside of it was ostensibly like a gay porn magazine. But when he opened the folder, out came the sounds of gay sex. So, uh, whatever that was, we weren't living in a realistic world. Uh, but he'd found this magazine, and Alon was like not really sure about this plot point. He felt like it was an imposition. I'm like, of course, it's an imposition. They're just letting you in a cow print dress. It's all an imposition. We're doing it in a park in Toronto. Like, <laughs> Toronto didn't even exist back then. Um, but uh, it was a, actually a really productive conversation to try to figure out why it was important to me 
that it not just be like I wasn't interested in the version where Parolles was also like not aware of his sexuality and it w- it turned into like bash the closet case kind of storyline. It was a, it was about him lying. It was about him concealing his true self. So there needed to be a point in Parolles history in our version of it where he had um where he had been out, he had been profiting off of his sexuality and he was lying about it to get close to Bertram for whatever reason, whether he wanted to live off of Bertram's money, whether he wanted just more access to him, probably both, you know, whether he didn't want to get kicked out of the showers when Bertram was shot, like whatever it was that he wanted access to, he had to be concealing something to be there. So that's why the the porn became like a, a fairly essential addition to that lineup rather than it just being a like let's out this guy and then let's gay bash him and then let's stick him in a dress and humiliate him at the end it had to be about like his own self-repression and and like ultimately Lefeu was the first one to reincorporate him into the society when he admitted who he was and he came back and said yes I was fucking lying um and it also had to be like I, I also didn't want the like queer martyr story like I, like, because Parolis is kind of a dick. Like, it, he does lie. He does, like, put people's lives in danger. Like, he, he may... Whatever the stupid story is about the drum, uh, we had him come in for the scene where he was pretending to go and get the drum from the enemy camp. Uh, we had him come in. We were like, what's the most loathsome per- thing a person could do when they say they're going to go and do something noble? And we were like, oh, yeah, he went to McDick's. So he came in with... He came in and sat down with his fries and his, like, milkshake and was, like eating that and being like, I don't know why they're making me pretend I'm a soldier. And then that's when they caught him and beat the crap out of him. Uh, which ends up being a really, like, like the reversals of the reversals of your sort of expectations of the characters were really important to us. That, like, we, we reversed the reading of Bertram as just this, like, indifferent cad. We reversed the reading of Helen as just this, like, you know, martyred virgin. Um, like, cause you read her actions and she's not, she's, she's sure she's that she's sad. Her dad's dead, but she is also a rapist. So, you know, deal with that complicated human who like, and then fakes her own death and like <laughs> has a wedding dress in her knapsack. Like she's, she's crazy and weird, but like weird in a way that like we might be able to recognize like our best friend's little sister in there or something, or like God forbid ourselves. Um, she's a monster of love and in the same way Parolis is a monster of love and in most ways actually you could read all these characters as like the ways in which love makes us really shitty people um or like do things that are ethically questionable and it's like the reason why the old people in the plays seem a little more grounded is because they've already had their time to be those monsters and they're just a little bit more relaxed Still not great. I mean, Lafeu still turns out to be this like horrible, bigoted homophobe because he's crushing on the Countess and trying to protect her from her son's best friend bad influence. Um, and you know, the king still believes that he can just do whatever he wants and like put couples together because he says so. So like nobody's really that great about love in the play, and I think that 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 became an interesting thematic as the as the story went on and that tied into the the way that the parole is story and 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 our rejigging of it became something to reinforce that central thematic that we were looking at and just a couple of seconds ago you you explicitly <laughs> referred to Helena as a rapist you're an artist who does not shy away from that word and and actually having a character fully own those actions and I think that in a play like this um, specifically because it's the female character who perpetrates there is a little bit of sort of sweeping it under the rug and pretending that's not really what it was that happens Um, but it is that's exactly what it is and there in term but in order to get through the play and survive and make it to the end and theoretically still consider it a comedy there is a certain amount of tolerating behavior from her that we might not otherwise do if it was a male character, if it was a tragedy. What are some of the ways that um, Helena can be sort of humanized while still also like owning that kind of behavior without us totally turning on her? Well, I mean, like I, I, the Disney films were like totally my, my touchstone 
for for it is like somebody who's brought up with a very specific commercialized idea of what love is um and like also like lauren and i talked lauren gillis was my assistant director on the on the piece and uh, like a long-term collaborator of mine um that's when i keep saying lauren that's what i'm talking about um and uh lauren and i talked a lot about her as like the archetype of the bulldozer like the like the the sort of capitalist idea of the meritocracy that we live in like helena has a lot of those like all the adults love helena because she's got like pluck and spunk and quirk and like <laughs> lots of those like monosyllabic words that end in a k that like describe kind of like pushy young women <laughs> like <laughs> um, but she's got those like qualities that are like at the same like that they're like admirable if you're not the target of them um, and then you just feel trapped by them if they're coming towards you. Um, so she's got that, which is also like, which is also something we learn is like you, I don't know, it's in like Harriet the Spy. It's in like, <laughs> you know, all these things we're fed as kids, like especially for like young women as the ways in which they're supposed to navigate through what is still a heavily patriarchal structure that is biased in 117,000 ways against them. Um, so so an understanding like the the biggest thing to be compassionate towards helen or any of these characters is understanding this the broader system that's at play in in this world the mechanisms of patriarchy that dictate this world and there's a lot like for a shakespeare play there's a lot of really cool female characters and if you add the slutty clown that's like one more <laughs> um but like they're like helen and the countess are like the two like the countess what did shaw say that he said that horribly patronizing thing about the countess it's like one of the nicest old ladies in any play i've ever seen um which like i told nikki to just forget the fuck about um because i wanted her to be a, a lot more toothy than that i no one really wants to watch some serene old lady be nice all night. <laughs> um, but, like, understanding what created this world and what it takes for a woman to survive in this world is, like, Helen is going to extraordinary measures to deal with an extraordinary situation. Like, it's also, like, I admire, I really admire still to this point, like, and it, like... Sometimes when people are passive aggressive with me, I, I use the same tactic of like just taking everything like at face value, like like oh you said that I'm going to take that completely literally because I'm not playing your passive aggressive game. So when Bertram's like, I would rather die in gunfire. I'm gonna run away to another country, and if you can get pregnant with my kid and get this ring off my finger, i.e. fucking never, then I will consider myself your husband. And she goes. Challenge accepted. <laughs> All right. Like, she just fucking goes for it. Like, and, and it's interesting dramaturgically, like, her relationship to us changes when she's given that challenge and decides to take it. Like, she monologues, like, to no fucking end at us through the first half of the play. Like, we get soliloquy after fucking soliloquy. Like, a scene happens, and then it's like, well, what's Helen got to say about this now? Um, and then, like, all of a sudden, she gives, like, she gets that letter from Bertram, she gives us one more monologue where she she lies to us. She straight up lies to us. She's like, I'm going to go to Spain and die. And then the next thing we know, she shows up in disguise in Florence. Like, she's like, I'm going to go, like, what's that? The Camino. She's going to go do the Camino and go die at the end of the Camino. And then she shows up in Florence pretending to be someone else. And she's like, oh, yeah, that Helen chick, she died at the Camino. Um, <laughs> like, but here I am, like... I've got lots of pluck and spunk. Let's like deal with this situation. Let's Don't forget roll about up our quirk. sleeves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she like, but she stops. She stops soliloquizing at us. We never get another soliloquy from her, from the point where she decides she's going to commit a rape. And like, I find that really interesting. Is that she she starts like she stops being able to even look us in the eye, and I think that 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 becomes. And that, that was something I, like, Lauren and I worked with Mina a lot on. And that, that, like, that really helped Mina to, like, make that shift into, like, that new set of clothes, that new environment, and, and make it through, like, a, a super dubious set of actions. Like, she actually had to make that decision right at that moment. Um, where she was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do Yeah, I'm sure I'll come and rape you and steal your ring. Got it. Like, roger that. Um, but she also, like, at the end of the play, she doesn't, she wouldn't, she would never, I don't think she would ever call it a rape. Um, 
she would just say, you know, she she performed like because like her her archetype, her like fairy tale archetype is like the clever wench who performs the many tasks, right? Like, mm. First she does the curing of the king, and then she goes and does the stealing of the ring. Like she does, she she gets given like a series of impossible tasks, and the the story is some like shitty thing from like day three of the or day nine of the Decameron. I can't remember what day it is in the Decameron. Um, and it's like the clever wench day. Like everybody sits around the story, around the fire, and is like, "Here's a bunch of stories about clever wenches." Um, and Helen, Helen has a different name in that, and Parolis and Lavach aren't in that one, quite tellingly. Um, but it's uh, like she, like when I was doing Taming of the Shrew, there was I, part of my research. I found out that there is like someone who's gone through all the folk tales like around the world or as many as like have been documented and like created this system of categorization for like folktale archetypes like shrew taming stories is like folktale number 473 and clever wench performing the many tasks is like 689 or something so that's that's helen's thing so she shows up at the end she she just thinks she did another task like and i, I believe she will like continue through the rest of her life believing that achieving the impossible is like god help us when she becomes a mother that kid is gonna be so fucked up <laughs> like she's she's the one who's gonna go in and like hold the harvard admissions department at gunpoint to get her kid through like a shitty sat score like that's that is the clever wench performing yet another many task like <laughs> um but it's also it's also an approach that still are are like and like it's interesting that the Decameron comes like right at the emergence of like capitalist economies. Like as the as the feudal manorial economy is dying, that lines up with the emergence of like the Medici banking system and like how Europe was transforming through there. And Shakespeare is like right at the like early cusp of that. And now that we're in hopefully late capitalism, who fucking knows? These stories, these archetypes, still are applicable. And I find that the ones like Shrew and Allswell both sit on that like emergent cusp of capitalist social structures like shrew is full of like gentlemen mingling with aristocracy like the class system being thrown into disarray this is again about class system being thrown into disarray like a <laughs> back then it was a lowly doctor's daughter like <laughs> you know score these days if you get a doctor's daughter but uh you know trying to marry a count and and the mixing of social st strata and the anxiety around that and the way that merit could suddenly create wealth or worth uh as opposed to simply like being born that way mm -hmm. so as previously discussed generally not considered a good play and therefore not an often produced play um aside from your own have you ever seen a production or an adaptation that you thought was really effective no mine was brilliant <laughs> <laughs> it's the be all and end all of all's wells that ends wells um have I ever seen... No, I haven't. I've only seen it done once. And it was... Or it, was or it must have been like 2002 or 2003 at Stratford. Um, didn't do a lot for me. Um, there were some good performances in it. like, um, But it was it was a very... like It was on the it was on the festival stage for some reason. It must have sold no tickets. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't put this one on the festival stage ever. Um... William Hutt was the the king. Um, nobody stuck their hand up his butt. Uh, Lucy Peacock, I think, was Helen. Um, I think Richard Manette directed it. I generally found Richard Manette didn't have the sense of irony that I like in approaching Shakespeare. There was a reverence. There was also a commercialism to it that I think... You know, I, I'm just very much of the mind that I don't think it's generous to an audience to make them feel good <laughs> or straight up feel good. I think like a, if you want to feel good, you can download a shitty Meg Ryan movie, like at least for that demographic of people who are at strap. Like you can you can, you know, watch all the You've Got Mail you want and, and get that like unchallenging uh simple kind of hit of oxytocin that you want from like uh, a rom-com but like if you're gonna come to the theater i think it's important to feel implicated and and treated like you're intelligent and i think that uh 
I think that there's actually a great deal of pleasure involved in that. So uh, I I don't I don't have a lot of time or interest in seeing um, productions of Shakespeare that assume that the audience just wants to have a nice time. Um, because there's easier ways to make people have a nice time with words that aren't so difficult to understand. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that was the only production of it I've seen. Um, have I heard of any... Pro I, yeah, the, the, I guess the edition... I was working under the Oxford edition, which was... Actually, I usually like to work from Arden's, but I, I also just go searching for whatever editor has the best footnotes, and in this one it was the Oxford. Um and that editor talked about a production that sounded pretty good that totally escapes me at this point because it was like 18 months ago that I read that. That's a long time to retain information. <laughs> I might, there's, like somewhere in here, there's probably essay. Oh no, I have a different binder of all the research materials. But yeah, there are other productions out there that sound not bad. Um, I also, like mine was very, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily... I don't know if I would want to remount that exact production anywhere. Um, that production was very much designed for High Park. Um, so I don't know that, like, I wouldn't transfer this production, like, directly into a theater in, like, Germany or even necessarily in Stratford. Because um, I, I really, approaching this production, it was really, like, who is this audience and what do I have to offer? That's usually where I start with any production, whether it's Shakespeare or new work or whatever. Like, how can I... How can I offer that audience something on the basis of my experience in politics that I think would be useful? So everything from casting to editing the script to adding those words to like costuming to like the stagecraft of it. I was like, you know, like the thing, like knowing that I was on that high park stage, which is like a fucking ocean of a stage. It's 44 feet wide. I was like, people are going to like flip their shit if we come out and change the scenery around between every scene to indicate location. So we're going to do location with lights and with costume and set is going to give us dramaturgical structure instead because people won't get up and shout if we like push the rectangles around again. Like, <laughs> but if we push the rectangles around more than like three times, people would be fucking irritated with us. Also two rectangles can't make that many interesting shapes. Um, and and like even that set design where we had that big white walkway down the middle like the the stage is a diamond but i working with teresa wanted to narrow that space actually because i find like with this play i didn't want people doing that i wanted to like really focus the action and i knew that like the light the led lights that they often rent for the park light up surface really well so I was like great we can get some color on there if we like make that thing white and like lighten it as much as possible then we can go like purple blue purple blue for like Brazilian Paris um and like like everything right down to the like the logic of sort of freezing scenes on stage and putting another scene in front of it and then unfreezing that was like I don't want to wait those seven seconds it takes for someone to walk down that stage. Like, I just want this thing to fucking go. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, everything about that production was designed to meet that audience in that place at that time. So I, I don't know, I don't know that the production is objectively useful. I think it was useful in that slot. And it, like, I also know, like having done the park before, I know what people come to that venue, what kind of experience they want, what the edge of that is and how, like, if I know where my edge is, then I know how I can push. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, like, the, there was a big conversation about putting a butt plug on the end of a drill and, like, brandishing that prop around not once, not twice, but thrice in that production. <laughs> and, like, the conversation was, like, sure, people might get anxious that their kids know what that is. But if their kids know what that is, that ain't my, my fault. We never, we never actually used it as such. We, we used it in lots of ways that were not like, hey, kids, this is a butt plug. It was like, you know, if you can recognize what that pink thing is rotating on the end of that drill, that ain't my problem. That's knowledge that's already like your kid was watching porn on your computer. You should check your browser history. I didn't do that. Right. <laughs> so I always end with the same question. But before, before we get there, do you have anything else you want to add about all's well? What else do I want to add about All's Well? Um, 
People should do this play more. I like it. I think it's like incredibly unpleasant. Um, <laughs> what else do I want to say about Oswald? I don't know. Um, I guess my affection for the play is also like very tempered by the experience of this production, which was one of the, you know, like you have some processes where you have a fucking amazing time through the whole creation process with your designers and your actors and you all have so much fun and it's so affectionate that you sort of forget to put the stakes into the work and the work ends up being kind of flaccid and self-congratulatory and then you have some processes which are fucking miserable and are just like completely driven by interpersonal conflict and you dread going to rehearsal every morning and you end up with a brilliant piece of work because like the sparks are like flying through the whole thing this was one of those like really rare experiences where it was like an absolute fucking pleasure to show up to rehearsal with it um like i loved everyone i worked with on it like without exception um it was one of the easiest felt easiest uh productions i've ever directed and i was actually really fucking proud of how it turned out uh which is really rare thing so i i really love this play and i'm i'm fully aware that i have zero objectivity as far as the text is concerned. like I, the text is garbage like i don't think my love of this play has actually anything to do with what's between the covers of that oxford edition i think it has everything to do with the people i encountered this play with and the space i like you know you get <laughs> you get to be such a hot fucking mess in high park like i was directing like it was 40 degrees the last day of rehearsal, I was I had resuscitated this favorite pair of shorts. I'd just gotten them like gotten this hole stitched up in them, and I I would go running up and down that amphitheater, and I like was running up those stairs, and I ripped, like my shorts had a rip from like one knee to the other through the inseam, like they were like it was like I was wearing like a loincloth. <laughs> I had pink eye because Lauren got pink eye, and I let her take notes on my computer, so my one eye is like swelled up. I haven't slept in days. I'm like standing there with no shirt on and a frozen washcloth on my head, eating a popsicle with my pink eye, doing the last rehearsal for this show. Fucking happy as a pig and shit. Like it was that kind of process. And then it turned out to be like quite a, like I think quite a solid production. Like people, people mostly seem to like it. I don't know. They probably wouldn't tell me if they didn't, but um, I felt it was quite strong. And so, uh, you know, like most scripts my whatever the words say is kind of like irrelevant by the end of it sure they it could sometimes it can be a great script and i still hate it because i had to, i had to deal with some asshole when i was working on it but this one this one i think my love for it is very specific to that experience of directing it so you started with the synopsis of what all's well that ends well is about but at the end of the day what is all's well about that ends well about Pink eye and popsicles. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's about a, a slutty clown in a cow print dress doing a real impressive quick change. <laughs> and then, and then underneath that widow mumu, she also had the cow print dress there. So we underdressed her two different ways. And then she was singing that song again in the the third transition. And she like undressed, she unzipped her mumu and dropped it to the ground. And then pulled like right in front of us, she pulled her like nasty blonde wig out and pulled off her purple one kept singing and then she changed her location and that was for me that or the big snowplow move where they pushed all the rectangles and shoved the chairs off stage and made that like Jean Valjean shitty Les Mis barricade like those were the two that's what that play is about for me so like the the simple magic of okay here I'll, I'll bring it all together real nice uh, after being facetious like that it's about the like simple magic of bringing a fairy tale into a space and playing with what fairy tales even mean to us and i think in and especially the way that theater can offer that because like all of our all of our magic that this fairy tale created was like very raw theatrical like the same kind of dress up that we play as little kids and i think that like this play actually speaks to a very our ideas of love and our expectations are really innocent and also toxic ideas about what love are are formed at a very child place for us like they come when we're like six or seven and we watch the little mermaid or whatever 
and we carry those and those are the things that are in conflict with our adult selves as we go on and i think that that the 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 simple pleasure of theater can still appeal to that child in us that believes in that simple toxic idea of love that we want to hold on to that romantic side of us and i think that the the play really deals quite cleverly with that so tell us what you're you have coming up and plug all your social media and all of that jazz oh all my social media do i want to plug my social medias or do i want to keep that secret um mm. so with theater red light is what is that that's twitter but i might delete it uh that's also facebook i hate twitter it's full of nazis um <laughs> And then my Instagram is this isn't Tate on, and that's also my website, this isn't Tate on.com. But then there's also the red light district.ca because I'm a freelancer, but I also have a company. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.